Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, sorry, John, it's Esther's time to shine as we kick off the third in our series on the films A Star is Born. the best, but he was burning out. Until he met Esther Hoffman. Who wanted more than success. I long they believe that strange was a I don't want to do this to you anymore. Well, then fight for me. Because if you keep walking, I'll hate you. With one more look at you, and I'll hate you forever. I want. I love you, Esther. A Star is Born, 1976. Andy, this is the one that you had not seen, uh, right? Well, I had only seen the most recent one. So okay, that's right. So there's another yes. one that By you had not seen. By the time we got seen. through the first two in our series, <laughs> this was the only one I had not seen. <laughs> so effective today, I'm not lying. Excellent. Right. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, this is uh, Barb Streisand and Chris Christopherson taking on the, uh, the r- role of the star who is uh, born and the star who uh, is, uh, burns out. And I think uh, you could say dies. I didn't want to spoil it quite one so early. One is born, one dies. <laughs> yes, one is born, one dies. Life, uh, It's the circle of life uh, right here uh, in rock and roll in 1976. How did it hit you? Oh, I was waiting for it. It sounded like you were going to say something. How did it hit you? Drum, drum roll. Andy. Was a drum roll is what that was in there. Andy, <laughs> yes, go. I, uh, so far, well, I guess I, I've seen all of them now, but of the the this being the third in the series, it's my least favorite so far. I still think they do some interesting things with it. I like the 70s vibe of it. I think that's something that I really enjoy i find myself enjoying with all of them really is how much they fit in with their their own time they all feel very much of the 30s the 50s the 70s and i think there's something really nice kind of about the way that it has that um that tone um but some of it i think you know there was um, a lot of just we've watched a few barbara streisand films now we've watched Funny Girl, and we've watched uh, What's Up, Doc. Mm-hmm. I think that's all right. Yes. And I um, I feel that there's something I enjoy a lot more in her in when she's there's kind of some funny stuff happening. Like in the comedy world, I, I really find myself enjoying her. This is a little more serious, and it's uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I find myself not gravitating to her as a character quite as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think that there's an interesting relationship story going on between these two characters, but I just find myself not connecting to it quite as much 
as the previous ones. I, I think that these characters, I just, I, I find a harder time to find a personal connection with. Do you think that's because of the characters individually, or is it some function of their relationship together? It's a different relationship. And I think that's something that also comes of the 70s. We have this very kind of, uh, there's this kind of love-hate edginess to the relationship. I mean, he's a very self-abusive guy, which we don't have so much in the previous films. The previous films, it's very much uh, an actor who has just kind of fallen out of favor and is really kind of frustrated because he can't land the bigger parts and all this sort of stuff. But he's not necessarily, I mean, he's an alcoholic, certainly, but he's not necessarily quite so in this particular case. You know, he's just violent. He's belligerent. He is, uh, um, you know, using all sorts of varieties of drugs. There's infidelity. There's very much kind of this pushback with the relationship, uh, as, as we see late in the film, when he's just like, you know, you know, that whole, you know, fight for me, fight, you know, that whole, they want there to be that kind of, that kind of fighting within the relationship. And so it was, it's a very much a different type of relationship. And I think it very much is, uh, I, I can see that coming from the seventies independent cinema, but mm-hmm. I just, it, for me, it's an interesting relationship, but I don't connect to it as strongly. It's interesting. I I don't either. I have trouble with it in in most every way. There are a couple of elements that really stand out to me as as compelling. Uh, one is that you know once again in this movie like the last we meet Esther at a point where she's already working, and you know she's not a big star but she's functional in the industry. Uh, she's doing commercials. She's got her group, the Oreos. They're doing they're doing their thing. Say that there's some wiggle room on on what it means to be working, but she's she's working. She's got gigs, and. I get the feeling earlier in the film that she doesn't need him as much and that she's actually going to do more damage to her life with him at the cost of fame. Uh, And he makes that I, I think that's a result of his effort to make that clear. Right. He tells her pretty early, you don't want this with me. You don't I'm not good for anybody. He he knows who he is. And and I think she is is kind of confused. But then by the end of the film, I, which I think is a statement on the sort of liberated nature of their relationship, liberated nature of her role in the relationship. By the end of the film, she's standing up there alone. She is every bit the star that he's trying to convince her she could be all along. And that transition for Streisand in this role or for Esther in this film it is the most believable so far to my eye, especially how damaging that realization of her success is to John. Um, I, I find that a rewarding transformation in this film, even though I agree with you overall as a piece, it's it's my least favorite. It feels m- much more sort of an uh, exercise of of. Hmm. I, I I don't want to say ego because I know that's influenced by the John or by the the letter that we'll be talking about later, um, but but yeah, I mean it feels like so much more of a piece of ego. Yeah, and um, which I mean, it's a it's a story that I feel ends up coming from that anyway because I think anybody who has seen these iterations of this story you know, give it a couple decades and people are going to go, oh, I'd love to play that part. I mean, this is like playing Hamlet, right? It's like this really meaty part. And sure, if you want to be an actor and you want to get the part of Hamlet so that you can perform that role, 
there is ego involved. Of course there is. Sure. It's kind of the nature of the industry. So certainly, and I, yes, I mean, I think Barbara Streisand, there certainly is an element of ego with her and the reasons to do this particular film. But I also think it's just a, a passionate story that people can connect with because there is a lot of emotion. And when you're an actor and you get to do some really interesting emotional things, I, I can see why people gravitate to this particular story. The thing I like individually about this movie, insofar as, and I struggle with this because I've been listening to the soundtrack all day, um, and so today the music is really memorable, uh, and and I'm I find it, it's not a very long soundtrack album, but the songs, particularly the Speedway songs, I really like. I like Christopherson uh, as a uh, as the performer here. I find his face just like coming home or after you know when we did uh alice doesn't live here anymore we both i think were were quite moved by his performance in particular um and and i re remember for me that was a, a great reminder that this guy is a phenomenal actor not just a you know just a country singer or just a he's not just a anything he is an incredible talent and I, I did deeply enjoy watching him move on stage for the most part on screen. I, I love the the musical element of it. I love the the um you know just the concerts I thought were were cool and fun and a great place to showcase the seventies. Um and uh you know it was it was entertaining to me. I going into today before I started listening to the soundtrack, I couldn't have told you even Evergreen was going to be hard for me to place. Um, and that's another one that, you know, I was assigned to play on the piano as a kid. Right. I mean, that's kind of the beginning <laughs> first notes. Uh, I have the sheet music in the other room. Right. It, it's um, and I still couldn't have couldn't have come up with the tune. Uh, out of memory. So, um, you know, I'm not sure how resilient the music is in my musical memory. Well, the music also is of its time. And I think that's something that between the 50s and the 70s versions that they they show that they're really sticking with their era. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It might not be as uh, as memorable now. It might be harder to connect with just because we're not of that time. But I mean, I yeah, I've listened to Evergreen like I, five times now. Just before we recorded, I listened to the recording from the movie. I listened to her a performance that she did at the Oscars. I listened to a couple of concert performances that she's done just to kind of really hear how this song has kind of followed Barbara through her career and how she kind of continues. Uh, using it and just and and how important it has become to her as a performer and and I think it's a really nice song. I actually have really grown to kind of like it. I don't think I liked it that much when I watched the movie, and I I think that may be the same with a lot of the songs in here. But I can totally understand where you're coming from. Where if you like put that soundtrack on and just listen to it for a little while, that stuff can really stick with you because they are good songs. I I I think that they work well in the era and if you if you listen to them and just kind of continuously take them in you can really find a way to connect with them it's it's uh i think they work but i again i do think that they are writing to their time and so it's interesting it's not like they're trying to write well i i can't speak to that specifically but it doesn't feel necessarily like they're trying to write songs that are going to be like 
the next big classic that everybody is singing for, you know, for decades and everything. I mean, right. you know, other, other than the performers themselves. I, I also get the feeling that, you know, I'm, I have a greater affinity to the music because the, the movie and the musical component of it is catching up to me. You know, um, sure. as as someone born in the 70s, like I grew up with my parents listening to this, <laughs> this soundtrack, yeah, right, right? right? This these songs. And um, and so like that's that makes it just more sort of, I don't know, accessible for me personally of the three stories, which I think echoes your point earlier. It's it's kind of why it's the most disappointing of the three stories, because it feels like this should be the one that I really lock into. And so much of this film, besides the elements that I just sort of talked about, the high points for me, the rest of it is is kind of a slog uh, and and trying to unravel why that is is the is the thing i'm struggling with what we should uh can we walk through some of the highlight sequences of the film uh out of the gate uh we open i I just want to open on the tron frisbee (laughs) okay that's like my favorite thing (laughs) that's my favorite thing in the movie because you can't figure out what it is it's this giant frisbee it's flying in the dark and it's lit up and then it's caught in the audience and lights start to come on and you realize we're in this massive concert and it is uh, I, I think that is one of the uh, it, it's just a, a fascinating visual way to introduce us to to the world. And so in terms of world building, I call that a win right out of the gate. It feels so gritty. It feels so 70s. It's, you know, all of the, the gritty uh, camera work during that opening concert, the lighting, the handheld footage crazy you know singers rock singers singing with masks on their heads you know just weird things it all feels very uh very much of the time and that frisbee i think absolutely fits in there it's one of those things that is in perfect in that world of world building and uh, with his song that he opens singing that watch closely now it just it, it really kind of kicks in to a vibe that we never would have gotten in that 50s version I I can't even imagine seeing somebody like uh like Garland or or uh, Mason in a film like this with a scene like that. What I find so interesting about it, you know, all of these movies really do their able work to set the tone of the film early, set the tone of the time, set the tone of the world and and uh, all of these characters, these main characters, John in this case, um become <laughs> I can't shake the the sort of stupid uh, business term, but the prime among peers of of sin and vice, right? But to to set that up, we have to see how crazy the '70s fans are at these concerts. We have to see them drinking from the leather flasks. We have to see the drugs. We have to see the booze. We have to see the crazy fireworks uh, in the audience. Which I, can you even imagine that scene in uh, a contemporary film? <laughs> uh, what that would have been like? It, it is. Um, we have to see that in order to recognize that he is the head gorilla the alpha gorilla right i mean he is the the bar by which all other sin and vice is going to be measured in this movie and i find it a, a really interesting comparison to go uh between the last two that we've already watched uh, and and see just how much he is able to get away with as a result of you know 30 years yeah for uh, for sure also i think when you take once he kind of leaves that concert setting, 
and uh, and he goes out and he ends up like needing needing a distraction. He doesn't want to go where everybody else is. And he slips away into that little club where he stumbles into Esther performing with the Oreos. Um, which is kind of a, a cute little song that they have, or just the kind of that that trio that they have set up. It, it was also interesting, and this is where I think it's it's interesting because this is this is our meet cute for this particular film. That's it. He kind of stumbles into this bar. Um, they realize who he is. They get him a table right up at the front so that he can listen to uh, listen to the performance, and he. It's it's interesting because they play it like he's mesmerized, but also he's very distracted because fans, notably uh, Robert England, uh, Freddy Krueger, and uh, you know the girlfriend that he's with, they keep talking to him and trying to get him to you know sign something and all this sort of stuff. They're just very disturbed, disturbing fans who are very pushy and not letting him just sit and enjoy. And ends up kind of interrupting the show because he gets into a, a bar brawl and all this. And Esther ends up saving him and helping him get out. But in the terms of the meet cute, it, it, it was weird. And and I mean, I I guess I guess there was a sense of him connecting with her music to a certain extent. <laughs> but at I don't the same know how time, you can make that case since he uh, really couldn't hard. hear it. It's hard, yeah. And that's I think frustrating in this particular film because I feel like. We really want that meet cute to feel like I want to see that connection. I want to see him listening to her and just forgetting everything that el- that's surrounding him. And I feel like he's so distracted. He's drunk. He's arguing that he doesn't do that. And it, it, it ends up kind of falling apart a little bit in the meet cute for, the, for me in this one. Yeah, I, you know, I agree with you. Um, I, I struggle with it because it, it feels like as you watch it, we, we're we relying an awful lot on Christofferson's ability to, to play charming and, you know, apish at the same time, right? He has to, he, he has to both address, assess and address this weird relationship with, you know, young Freddy Krueger and his date and figure out how to dominate that situation while being, you know, intoxicated. And he has to fall in love with Esther and only do it with his eyes because they're the structure of the scene. They're not allowing him to do it with his ears. And I think that's I think that's a real loss because so much of the movie hinges on uh, us supposedly being able to believe that their relationship is is built on the music. And if you don't buy the meat cute, uh, how do you ultimately buy that? That's where the film ends up struggling for me. Scenes like that, and and even afterward, when we have Esther kind of wave at him, say, "Hey!" As, as this huge bar fight rages, and everybody's kind of you know going all crazy, and the owner's trying to kick everybody out, she kind of waves him out and say, "Let's go out the back," and she kind of pulls him out to help him avoid the crowds, which is great. And then he's like, "Oh, just hop in the car with me," and 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 goes to her place and all that. And it's it's fine. It all works. It's it, but I, but I feel like so much of what's happening then is Barbara Streisand doing her acting and, <laughs> and not, she's and doing her acting. <laughs> she's doing that acting thing. No, I, and I don't mean it in that derogatory of term. She feels like she's, um, uh, she's really putting on a performance right there. And I, by uh virtue of doing that i don't feel like i'm getting the 
connection in the two characters. I feel like it's her trying to do all this stuff to get him out of there, and I'm not getting a sense of their connection. Yep. No, I totally agree. And and I don't think it I don't find that there's a whole lot of uh, redeeming material as the movie goes on that that allows us to sort of resurrect what we lose by not having a really strong sequence early on. Uh, you know, we get more of him just sort of wandering out drunk. We get him spray painting her name on the wall of his lovely <laughs> mansion. Like we get a lot of craziness, uh, but but I don't think we get a lot of substance to, uh, to your point. It's a lot of them doing the acting. I will say, actually, before we jump too far, I will say in that scene, something else that we've had kind of consistent is the speech that our successful man gives to the woman when he sees her uh, perform. And he, his, I will say, I really kind of liked that they took a totally different direction on it. I enjoyed it because he's just like, uh, what did he say? Do you fish? <laughs> and it was like, it was this like this metaphor that he kind of came up with about about fishing and how it was finding that thing inside you and knowing when you got it and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, okay, I didn't see that coming when he said that. I didn't know that that's where he was going, that we were stepping into this speech. So that's actually a change that they made in the screenwriting for this that I really appreciated. I, I liked that they kind of gave it that twist. How about some of these other big moments, though? I mean, one of the the uh, major themes in the other movies is this reflection on uh, what it means to be and become a celebrity. How well do you think this film handles that in comparison to uh, the last two? It's all done differently. I think we certainly see it a lot more invasive and I want to say violent. I don't know if that's the right word, but certainly there is that sense of uh, pushiness with the press in this particular one. You do get that with the fans and some of the press in the previous ones, notably at the funeral scenes when they kind of all are ripping all of her stuff off, but it's not as consistent throughout. It really kind of just hits at that particular point in this one. I mean, you're getting those flashbulbs going a lot like they'll have these moments where you just have camera flash, 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 flash. And it's like this little montage, this quick montage of just camera flashes and just kind of all of that sense of that world of being, you know, pushed into these corners by all these cameras and lights all the time and and fans and everybody. Um and I think that it's another take on how a lot of actors, especially in the 70s, who were wanting to get into more of the kind of that independent scene and away from kind of that that stuff that felt so showy and big, trying to find that more um, that authenticity and feel like they were authentic and they didn't have to necessarily be in the spotlight. And I think that it was an interesting reflection in this film where it kind of felt like they were going for that but you can still end up being surrounded by all these lights. And so I, I think it was um, all, the most uncomfortable for me of of all of that with, mm. with the amount of bulbs and everything going on. I think it's, it is, it is you know, a point you made earlier, just how gritty the film is, that when they set up the world, they set it up, they've set some pretty high standard of discomfort. Um, you know, and it, so when they, when it goes dark, I think it goes, it goes, um, you know, for lack of a better word, successfully dark, threatening, uh, yeah. in, in a way they've leveled up the threatening, which I, I think is good. What, how about the relationship between the, uh, the, our, our manager and producer? 
I, you know, uh, Paul Mazursky plays the manager and I, I didn't, uh, it's funny cause he's, you look at him and I, I'm more familiar with him as a name who, uh, is a filmmaker and, and I mean, he's, he's written and directed quite a number of things, but I didn't realize, and maybe it's just because I've never connected him, the writer director with him, the actor, mm-hmm. and I've never put the two, two and two together to realize it's the same person. Um, I was like, wow, he's actually acted in a lot of things, right? L- yeah, quite up, a up bit. to this year. He's got or last year he's got well, something out, right? Well, it was that. What, what um, was that? I don't know. Even it know was what that it was. Orson Welles. It was that unfinished Orson Welles movie that Netflix finished. Oh, right, because he's dead. Yeah, because he's dead. Right, right, <laughs> right. He died in 2014. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but <laughs> he was very busy up to the very Kung end Fu of Panda his life. Two. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Up to the end. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, but I, you know, I I like the relationship. Uh, Paul Mazursky was an interesting choice. I don't know if I, uh, I, I think he was fine, but I felt that having the studio manager uh, or the studio chief, uh, as in Niles in the previous two films, something about that connection with that character and the involvement he had, I just felt was a lot stronger. I mean, Mazursky was fine as Brian, but I I just didn't uh, find as much of a connection with him as the previous two films. Well, as long as we're talking about uh, John's management team, we got to talk about uh, Gary Busey. Oh, good old Gary Busey. What do you think of Gary? Well, it's it's funny. He's uh, you know he's in a position of responsibility, so that's, <laughs> that's so that's weird. <laughs> that's well, it's early in his career. It's early right. in his career, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, it's, uh, well, and the, actually this was just a couple years before he played Buddy Holly. So, yeah. uh, actually now that I look at that, yeah. I, he's, uh, he was, a I think actually a perfect choice for somebody to be kind of, um, involved in John's, uh, kind of concert life and, and performance life who seemed like a reliable fellow to kind of keep him on task and keep him where he needed to be going but also be the one to provide him with the cocaine when he needed it he uh, he fit the look of the road kind of manager uh so exceptionally well just see the the first shot we get of him i think it's the first shot we get of him is the we're we're on the giant stage and we're kind of looking down over the crowd and he crosses the stage as he's just getting something ready you know he's like throwing a cable somewhere and then he jumps to talk on the on a phone or a walkie-talkie or some such and um it it's easy to miss that that's our introduction to gary Busey in this movie because he looks like just uh, he, he an, another union guy uh looks like a roadie yep. he looks like a roadie like setting up speakers and doing that thing i mean he just uh he he fits perfectly in the role and i was very excited to see him uh as kind of playing it as as straight as he did right he's a this is a uh, straight edge character and uh it's a guy who feels the pain of wanting to help and and build john's career and help him be successful and and he's feeling a great deal of grief watching this you know his talent kind of fall apart i thought i thought he was a highlight for me as a secondary character he was he was real standout yeah he was fun he was very fun uh let's see who else do what else do we have in terms of those uh callback sequences the well and and obviously we have you know we have the moments where esther becomes a star and we see her rise and we've got him kind of watching and we've got the 
uh, the continuous rise as he continues to fall and he gets mm-hmm. fired and he uh, loses his career and we've got the award scene. So that's a big one. Uh, we've got the uh, and the award scene here is a really interesting one. We'll have to talk about that. And then it, it's kind of that that whole in the other ones, you know, he goes off to a sanitarium here. He really is just kind of uh, staying home, trying to get himself cleaned up. And he seems like he's doing OK. But then, of course, he ends up with this uh, groupie in the pool. <laughs> so that's a new <laughs> right. that's a Looking new addition an interview. Uh, okay, so let's talk then about the Grammy interruption because that's one that um, that I know is again leveled up. The thing with the Grammy interruption is that I mean we get the same kind of interruption. He's he's, uh, but it seems like he's a little more angry at her, and I think that's something that we really feel in the seventy one going to that whole love hate thing that we we kind of see through this whole thing is there's this this kind of sense that i mean he hates these people in the audience he's there's kind of this they seem to be having this little bit of an argument and and it's just he is a very much angrier person very different from our james mason character who's basically up there pleading for work it's just a totally different vibe and everything um you still get kind of that that uh horrified sense of embarrassment and everything that Esther's going through um but it's uh, it's almost because you know he's just i mean he's just not a not a good person right now it's he's pretty not, terrible yeah he's like not redeemable yeah. you know like that's what we what those are the breadcrumbs that we're getting like they're building this character as somebody who is is just not redeemable no matter yeah. what she's going to do and i think when we get to sequences like when she's getting her you know cover photos taken and they're having this conversation you you get this feeling that she is becoming increasingly disconnected from his you know angst and uh uh, so it's to the point where you're not even sure that she she would know what to do to begin with. And I think they, um, you know, he Christopherson, I think, plays that well, plays that sort of seething well. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, even at the end of that, uh, the Grammys speech, it's an interesting tie in with the press that because we don't really get that at the end of the funeral so mm-hmm. much. Uh, right. we, I mean, we don't get it all, really. Um but it really comes into play at the end of the Grammys when the cameras all start kind of following them. It's like vultures following for the feeding. And then you get the reminder of that uh, radio, that uh, DJ who has it in for John and and just kind of yells something. I can't remember what he says, but some snide comment and John just decks him and and Esther's, you know, you know, all the camera strobes. I mean, it really goes to town in that particular scene with kind of his anger the 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 you know craziness of the press all of that all of it's hitting right at this one particular moment yeah it it really is and it it's happening in in good concert with you know others who are just you know i I think the atmosphere that they set in the the ceremony itself is um you know it's it's a solid contrast to the sort of seething rage that he brings into the room plus they put rita coolidge and tony orlando up there uh, to to <laughs> set it off in terms of again bringing us into the world, uh, it's not a bad way to do it. And Rita Coolidge was uh, married to Christopherson at the time. You know, if they're not doing their hair, <laughs> some of the struggles that I think we end up having with this film 
are uh, because of the nature of how it came to be. This is a film that I think Barbara Streisand uh, and her partner at the time, um, who was uh, John Peters, who was producing this film, he very much was uh, trying to find a, a project to do with her that would kind of really be something to help her shine. It was the the first project that he was on uh, as a producer. This it, it's really kind of funny how the two of them met. He his uh, family came from the hairdressing business on Rodeo Drive. He had a lot of uh, film connections from there. He had actually designed a wig for Streisand that she wore in the film For Pete's Sake that she had done a couple years before. And that began the relationship. And then he produced uh, an album of hers later that year and uh, kind of gained in in uh, his skill sets, I guess you could say, and ended up producing this. And, uh, and then he kind of grew in his producing and and uh, along with Peter Goober, the two of them ended up heading Sony. So it was uh, quite a rise that he had in a short period of time. That's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. But uh, I'm looking forward. To, I, I want to talk a little bit more about him because his career is pretty crazy. So it was kind of a vanity project. And I know that we talked about that a little bit with Judy Garland. But in that one, um, I I feel like they had I don't know they tell told that story in a way where I grew to like those characters better and I don't know if it's just the way that Streisand's characters was uh, was written here but I did have a harder time with it and I think that the uh, I I don't know I honestly don't know if it really comes from Peters and Streisand or the writers that they had or the Frank Pearson as the director or the fact that even with Frank Pearson as the director Streisand and uh and Peters were fighting amongst the, or fighting between the themselves they were fighting with the director uh Christofferson they were fighting with I mean everybody was kind of fighting this sounds like this was a very difficult film to actually make so I wonder if that's why it ended up feeling this way well and that gets to, to something we alluded to earlier in the in our conversation, which is this uh, note, we'll say treatise, dare I say that um, article really? Yeah, it's it's a screed. I, I don't I'm trying to find uh, the right word for it because I sure it's an article insofar as it was printed in the Village Voice. Um, but uh, wow, it, it's a hell of a story. It is titled My Battles with Barbara and John by Frank Pearson, the director himself. And it doesn't make anyone look good in the production of this film and it uh, to to my eye it it totally colors what you think of the movie because he goes into meticulous detail about you know the sets the choices the songs the clothes the the fights that they had over just about everything he makes barbara streisand look like a shrew he makes uh, uh peters uh, come off like a, a rage-filled maniac um it is uh, it it's it's a stunning read and it's it's not short like it's a it's a great uh bit of drama uh if you're into some behind the scenes very one-sided behind the scenes uh dirt <laughs> i didn't read the whole thing i i i read a section i, I couldn't find i didn't look too hard but i only found a section of it i was uh sitting at the pool with my son at swim team and i was in it man i was 
it was like I was there. So uh, here, there's just a couple of passages that stood out at me. The first one is um, uh, the the setup here is she's having a conversation with Frank, and um, you know he's. He is trying to tell her that he is supportive of her and she isn't feeling it. Uh, she she mentions uh, Ray Stark and uh, we're talking about funny girl there and how she's uh, she is bitter. She carries a great deal of bitterness toward Ray Stark. So that's sort of the setup of, of this passage. Uh, Pearson writes, she's upset with me. I don't feel you really want to love me. All my directors have wanted to make me beautiful, but I feel you hold something back. There's something you don't tell me. You never talk to me. I realize she's serious. I love you, I say, but I'm not the demonstrative type. I talk about the need for distance, for tranquil and objective judgment on the film. She can knock directors and actors clean out of the practice of their profession with 10% of her energy. I have to guard against it. She continues, Ray Stark always used to bully me, the son of a bitch. I made him and he made millions from me, millions You'll pay, she says, for every lousy thing Ray Stark ever did to me. What? Oof. What? Uh, John is there, too. They have fun fights, but I like this passage. Uh, <laughs> this passage from later in the article. Uh, Pearson writes, Barbara's cook told John not to look in the oven, and he screams at her. This is my house, and you don't ever tell me what to do in it. He looks in the oven. The souffle falls. The cook shrugs. We don't know if dinner will be ready or not. <laughs> it's like those little bits of uh, those little doses of character nuance. I think, uh, you know, they speak volumes. Uh, finally, one last passage on the script. And the script, he, he he's a little bit bifurcated in the storytelling about how the script come to, came together. In this passage, he says, I determined not to finish the script, to keep things spontaneous and fast, to reveal little in advance to her and the other actors, to freeze moments in time. And... That is something that he he talks about at at some length about how much he loves being able to capture the uh, sort of improvisational nature of the music, the light just right, capturing all of Barbara's good side and uh, still allowing her uh, room to stretch and show her, quote, bad side, uh, the side that she calls good for comedy. There's the other side, which is good for the romance, but the good for comedy part, we need to stay away from that unless she's trying to make people laugh because her, her mouth curves just so. And, and how meticulous she is about that. So he really is trying to steer production, like on-set production of the film, uh, in such a way that they don't have a lot of time to react. Because in the story of the screen of of this letter, any opportunity for Peters for Streisand to react to something on a page ends in a massive fight and a massive disaster and delay. Uh, from sets, uh, the uh, moving to Arizona and having this house in the middle of the desert was a, a major issue uh, for them. They they hated the fact that they were in Arizona. They wanted it to be on the coast highway in uh, Northern California, um, and and so all of these things I think went to to complicating the production. I've got a passage I'd like to read as well. Excellent. This is uh, in the editing, uh, and I think it speaks to. Uh, to some stories also about the fact that later, if there were scenes that Barbara wasn't happy with, that she actually came back and redirected them herself after the fact. 
We look at first assembly of major scenes, the recreation of the Leon Russell piano incident. Chris croaks the lyrics to her music with a boyish delight. He sounds as if the music and the words had only that moment occurred to him. He is perfect. She is magical. Words are no good for it. The scene simply makes you feel wonderful. Barbara is crying. It's better than my dreams, she says. And then she turns to Peter Zinner, the editor. But Peter, you used the wrong take. Why did you do that? That was a mistake. We patiently explain the difficulties of cutting, how sometimes you have to sacrifice a marginally better take in order to get a better rhythm or to be able to use some other piece that is essentially better. She is unconvinced. When I get the film, she says to me later, will he do it my way? I check. Barbara's company owns the negative. She has final cut on the film. <laughs> oh. So. Yeah. Well, the sequence I think you're talking about is is that that's the one where she's noodling around in the piano and playing that little piece. And he comes in and, and says, you know, hey, play that again and, and imp- improvises yeah, some lyrics yeah, to it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and earlier in the letter, he... Uh, 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 Pearson actually talks about that scene, that it actually happened. Um, it was Barbara noodling around on the piano and Leon uh, comes in and and says, that's beautiful. And she says, oh, it's it's nothing. It's nothing. I can never sing to it. It goes too high. And Leon says, no, wait, just play it again, just like that. And I mean, you know, Pearson took that scene as he witnessed it and wrote it into the movie. And uh, as a result, she she, you know, the the turn for her emotionally uh, was one of great anxiety turned great reward. And so she was very passionate about that scene. And, uh, uh, you know, had a lot of had a lot of heat in it. I mean, you mentioned that uh, Frank Pearson was kind of noodling with the script a little bit and kind of working with that. That's an interesting thing that I think is worth talking about with this uh, film and all of these films really so far. I was uh, you know just kind of looking at the credits and how things shift and change as we go from iteration to iteration. This one, the screenplay is by John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion and Frank Pearson, based on a story by William Wellman and Robert Carson. Now, uh, and then uncredited IMDb actually lists Barbara Streisand, Jonathan Axelrod, Jay Preston Allen, and Alvin Sargent. So that, I think that speaks very well to the fact that Streisand had been noodling. And it's funny that uh, Pearson does not have uh, any say there. That's well, very I guess he does get he gets the screenplay credit. Right. Guess, so. But then you look at going back. So William Wellman and Robert Carson, they have been credited on um, this version and on the previous version um, because of their story that they had uh, written for the 1937 version. Now, the screenplay in 1937, this was that weirdness where there's the screenplay and the story credits, and they both had uh, Oscar categories Mm -hmm. for some reason. Now, the screenplay by Dorothy Parker and Alan Campbell and Robert Carson in 1937 does get the credit in 1954 that that one was based on that screenplay and William Wellman's and Robert Carson's story. And then the screenplay was by Moss Hart. Moss Hart is nowhere to be found in the 76 credits. Um, But uh, the only other credit that really has a through line is it's it's not even official because she's not credited in the 1937 version, but the story by Adela Rogers St. John's when she wrote What Price Hollywood before it um, before people took it and kind of adapted it for the screen, um, she does have an uncredited um, listing in ni- in the 1937 version. So, but nothing know, in 1954 nothing, or 76. Y- yeah, nothing beyond that. And obviously the WGA is determining all of this sort of stuff. So it's interesting to see what they're 
what they're saying, okay, you get that, you don't get that. Moss Hart, I'm guessing, gets nothing because his screenplay in 1954 was very much uh, based on those other two properties so much that they were so similar. And then you change it to 76, where it's a totally different industry. It doesn't feel like there's any Moss Hart stuff because really the core of it is that Wellman Carson story right. that I think is the just the foundation of you know the 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 failing drug addicted star and the rising female uh, star and that's I think become the kind of the core and so it'll be interesting we'll have to look in, in the 2018 version next week to see um, who does get credits when uh, we go to that one see A Star Is Born has become the Kleenex of movies which no it doesn't even mean anything anymore yeah so, so many names. So many names. Uh, so let's bust through the cast. Uh, any, any standout members of the cast that we want to talk about that we haven't already um, haven't already brought up? Well, I think that it's worth pointing out that Barbara Streisand, when she uh, signed on for this, that uh, that she and and Peters really wanted uh, Neil Diamond to be in it. Um, because she and Neil Diamond had gone to high school together. They went way back, but he couldn't fit it in his schedule. They considered Marlon Brando, but then they, I guess they really were pushing for Elvis Presley to be in it. Elvis was totally interested. He thought it would be a great uh, chance to kind of revive his film career that had waned as he's kind of had continued performing. But Elvis's manager insisted on top billing. He wanted a ton of money. And and he said he didn't want Elvis portraying a character who was on a decline because Presley wasn't. He was very popular at the time. And so Elvis was out. Can you imagine this movie with Barbara Streisand and Elvis Presley? I truly cannot. I, I, I it, absolutely yeah. can't. In fact, I'm looking up just what was what was Elvis doing in 1976? He was a little bigger, right? A little, a little rounder face. He was a little bit bigger. I mean, it was he. he the last thing he had done, uh, the last you know works he had done as an actor, The Trouble with Girls and Change of Habit, Charo in 1969. You know, he was a different guy. Yeah, very much, very much a different guy. Yeah, I, uh, I have a hard time imagining him. You have to admit uh, that would have been one hell of a comeback. If had he been able to pull something like this off that I think that's uh, that would have been it would have been magical. I can't ever see him being cast, but that would have been something else. Now I really want to see Bruce Campbell as Elvis in the next A Star Is Born. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh. Yep. Yes, I do. Um, so so I mean, that's, I think, really an interesting angle with that whole thing. Um but uh yeah it didn't happen um i don't think i have anything else cast wise um i i you know just just speaking to uh arizona you mentioned that this a lot of this was filmed in arizona it was uh yeah kind of a lot of the stuff in the southern part of the state especially kind of their uh house out in the middle of nowhere but that concert that they they filmed early on in the film that was at sun devil stadium here in uh, down in tempe at, at arizona state university yeah and they filled that stadium it's actually an interesting story about kind of you know getting this massive crowd of like 50,000 people out there and they actually put on a concert there's a there was actually it's kind of funny there was an article in our um, local paper that came out in uh, 2006 because 
Weirdly enough, Chris Christopherson came through town to perform, and the same day, Barbara Streisand was in town performing. <laughs> what are the odds? Uh, the people who were organizing this, they're like, uh, we don't know how it happened. But the two of them performed the same night. They heard about the fact that they were each um, performing, and they both had great quips about it, and it was, it was very cute. And actually, Christopherson came and and got on stage with her at the end of her performance, which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> but but yeah, so they actually filled the uh, Sun Devil Stadium with uh, with forty five or fifty thousand fans, and they sold tickets because they made it into this actual concert. And so what they did, um, they they had, um, uh, uh, let's see, Graham Central Station. Santana, Montrose, and Peter Frampton, who was actually the headliner, because his album Frampton Comes Live was uh, was just about to come out, and it actually became number one a few weeks after this concert happened. They sold tickets for three fifty each, three dollars and fifty cents oh each. I can't imagine going to a, like a day long concert with you know big names at the time for, for three fifty. And what do you think? Nickel beers? Cheese, probably. Yeah, crazy. Wow. So, uh, and what they did is they said, okay, we're going to put on a concert and and there are going to be four hours to film the scenes that we need. There will be two hours in the morning and two hours later. And it was super stressful for the filmmakers because they had to kind of like stop this show and the audience was there chanting, no more filming, no more filming, <laughs> because they wanted the music. So it was very uncomfortable and very frustrating for the filmmakers. And I know Frank Pearson talked about it and how he had to find this Zen place because he was just so stressed out. But he and then everybody was also worried about Barbara Streisand kind of coming out and performing in the middle of like all these rock performers. But they said that the audience just totally ate it up and they just had the best time. So, and that's actually uh, the performance that she did for this crowd. Um, I think before the show, she performed Evergreen. It was actually the first performance of that song. Really? Yeah. Man, I have a hard time seeing that song performed in front of 45,000 people who are uh, frustrated. <laughs> Well, you know, as as we learn in this movie, they're frustrated. But once that music kicks in, they're yeah, in it. Shut them down. Yep. Uh, Robert Shurtees uh, is the man behind the camera. Uh, There's an able performance, I think, behind him, navigating a lot of crazy, frustrating elements. I, yeah, I, I I think that it fits with the 70s kind of gritty vibe. You know, I think I think Surtees is a cinematographer who brought that and just gave it a look that that worked nicely. I mean, he had been around for quite a while, and a lot of his earlier films were very much kind of the big, uh, the studio sorts of films with like, you know, Ben-Hur and The Bad and the Beautiful. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, finding a way to kind of shift his career from kind of those 40s, 50s, 60s into stuff like you're doing like, with the graduate in 67 and the last picture show and the sting, which we've talked about on the show right. before. Waldo um, Pepper. It, well, yeah. I mean, he very much, I think kind of found a way to move past that kind of technicolor, you know, big Hollywood look and found a great vibe for the seventies. I, I really like what he does here. And uh, I think that there's a fun play with the camera that works well with the editing. 
I think so, too. Uh, and we should talk just briefly about how that plays into the final um, to to the and I'll, I'm going to say it, suicide to the, the suicide sequence, because it it's a different take than we've had so far. It's, that is one of the big changes, right? We're not we're yeah. not in the ocean. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I, I think the this final sequence is it's fascinating because it it gives us a sense, an amazing sense of place, right? A, a sense of massive space out in this desert, a sense of speed. We get some fantastic shots that are right under the bumper. We're on the road. Uh, we get, you know, sh- mounted shots uh, on the camera and we see Christofferson sort of um, drunkenly listing the car across the road. We're behind Christofferson looking at the sort of the frenzy of the road as he winds in front of it. Uh, and And it's all... Um, cut to Esther's music. I think it's I, I think it's a, a powerful sequence uh, in this car, and I think it's beautiful. Um, e- even though I think uh, I just end up with I, I feel like it becomes narratively ambigu- ambiguous. Um, now that I've seen both of the other two prior, uh, in, I, what I, way? in an interesting way, because I think when you put him behind a car, behind the wheel of a car. And he's drunk, and he's reckless. It becomes uh, an opportunity for an accident, a, a drunk driving accident. It become it removes some of the intentionality of the suicide. I think the first movie has probably the most uh, well telegraphed intentional, like I'm looking longingly at you, and now I'm walking into the sea, uh, sort of moments. Um, this one feels less intentional. It feels like here's a guy who has every single thing that we know is wrong about driving an automobile. He's doing it. And there are guys who do that and live. There are. And I, I, I guess I see your point now, but I, yeah, it's an interesting. I hadn't looked at it that way because I think I, I felt that it was so intentional that he purposefully was driving like a maniac and even though we don't see it i feel like at some point i could totally buy that he might just like spin the wheel and allow it allow the car to roll and crash and and do it completely intentionally so i but, but can we don't you can see you it. We don't say see that it without the benefit of of these uh, the lore of a star is born over your head you know what I mean? Like, if you step away from what you know A Star is Born to be? I think so, because I feel it's designed that way. Where I feel, like, I don't know, watching the the scene leading up to him hopping in the car and driving, where, uh, you know, I mean, it's they go through their, their kind of rekindling their relationship and everything, and, and we got that really interesting. They kind of, they're, they're together, and then... It's like this, he's looking at her and talking and, and, and it's a really interesting shot as she turns and looks at him and it's like, it holds on her and this, it dissolves to a sunrise and you get this massive circle of the sunrise coming in very slowly over the top of her. And then it cuts to him and she's sleeping and he's kind of looking at her and 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 kind of hugging her. And just I don't know the way that he stares at her and everything. I felt everything here was totally intentional. I. I don't know. 
now you're making me doubt myself <laughs> because I'm like, but yeah, am I thinking that because of the previous two films? I don't know. It's it's hard to say because I mean, we see him racing like a maniac, and the last thing we see is him driving up over a hill. We see the car kind of go over the hill, and then the sun goes behind a cloud and everything in the image kind of the sunlight goes away and it, the, it just kind of gets darkened and overcast. And then we cut to the helicopter coming down at the crash. Right. Oh, I don't know. You threw my head for a spin. The more I think about it, I'm like, <laughs> if I had only seen this film, what would I think? I mean, right. he's a drunk driver. I wouldn't be surprised that he crashed, but did he do it deliberately? Damn you. I don't know. And, and Andy, I, I and I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I think opening it up to ambiguity is you, right up your alley. Like I I had this feeling that me throwing this little grenade was going to make the film better for you. And, I, you know, in the same way that it makes it more questionable for me, because I, I don't know, think so. Really? I think that it has to be intentional in context of this particular of this story. story. Yeah, I I so do. So then I end up feeling like it's another flaw. <laughs> Stack them up. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, anyhow, I'm sorry for that diversion because I do think the scene is an excellent example of some fine camera work and and cutting. Yeah. So, um, anyhow, back to the narrative at hand. Does it feel like Andy that we as are, are becoming more and more cemented as critics because we didn't like it, even though this was uh, this was a fan favorite? <laughs> I it's funny. Sometimes I'm like I totally feel like I'm siding with fans, and sometimes like right now I'm like I totally feel like I'm siding with the critics because <laughs> critics they didn't care. I mean, I I do think that there are elements within this that are definitely worthwhile, but yeah, critics didn't. They had more issues with this film, but audiences just really loved it. Uh, critics thought it was boring. And, uh, but, you know, people connect with the characters. And I think, again, that speaks to the time. I think that fans were able to really find this connection in Christofferson and Streisand. And so, you know, more power to the filmmakers that they are able to kind of, you know, tap into what audiences are looking for. Uh, how did it do at awards season? Well, it's funny. Um, this film had seven wins, six nominations. At the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Song, Evergreen, which won. Uh, Streisand and Paul Williams got their Oscars for this. And just to keep things straight, Pete, this is the song that beat Gonna Fly Now from Rocky. Uh, Robert Surtees was nominated for Best Cinematography, but he lost to Has Haskell Wexler for Bound for Glory. Uh, best Sound, Lost to All the President's Men, and Best Music, Original Song, Score, and its Adaptation, or Best Adaptation Score. Woo! There's a title <laughs> for you. Uh, Roger Kellaway was nominated for that, but he lost to Bound for Glory. Now, it's funny, as I was saying, because all of the female leads of these films, uh, all four, have an Oscar. We have... Uh, uh, Gaynor has the Oscar. I can't, it was that very first Oscar where she won for those three films. Uh, Judy Garland has a, it's kind of an Oscar. It's the it's the like the mini Oscar that they gave her, you know, for being a great kid actress right. when she was young. They gave her here's your little mini Oscar. It was kind of almost offensive, but <laughs> she still has one. <laughs> Barbara Streisand won one for her song here, and of course Lady Gaga will win one in uh, for her song in the next film. 
But so there's an interesting little uh, tidbit about Oscars. Now, at the Golden Globes, it was actually a winner in all five of the categories it was nominated in. Best Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, Best Actor and Actress in a Musical or Comedy, Best Original Score, and Best Original Song. Now, weirdly, the Grammys, it was in the 1978 Grammys. I don't know how... I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that happens. I don't know if it, because like the album was released maybe a year later. Mm-hmm. I don't know how all this works, but anyway, it was in the 78 Grammys and it was nominated for best album of original score written for a motion picture or television special. And it lost to star Wars and, uh, which I thought was, uh, interesting. Um, because yeah, I don't know why I think that's interesting, but it is. It's Star Wars. <laughs> it's Star Wars. Also, yeah. nominee, other nominees included Rocky, The Spy Who Loved Me, and You Light Up My Life. How often are any of those movies going to be in the same category? Right. Seems like this is music unites us all, Andy. Music right. is the grand well, You light up my life, Pete. Mm, and you're <laughs> Spy Who Loved Me, Andy. <laughs> How to do with the box office. Well, Frank Pearson did get a budget of $6 million for Babs's remake of this story, which is about $25.4 million in today's dollars. That puts it as less expensive than the previous iteration, but more expensive than the first. The movie was released for the holiday season, hitting theaters on December 17, 1976, opposite The Shaggy DA, Freaky Friday, King Kong, and The Cassandra Crossing. The movie did well for itself, becoming the third highest grossing film of 1976, just behind Rocky and, now this is a bit of a surprise, Pete, To Fly, the first IMAX documentary, what? which actually was the highest grossing documentary up until Fahrenheit 9-11. Wow. Yeah. So that's the second highest grossing film of 1976. People were probably excited about IMAX and that whole format. Yeah. So. Oh, man. But yeah, but back to Babs, the movie grossed $80 million or $338.4 million in today's dollars. That lands it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2.2 million. A success for the artists involved and a success for the studio, proving that this was still a story worth telling and retelling, as we'll soon discuss next week. Well, Andy, I am fascinated to see where it, this comes up when we step into the ring to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this show. Uh, if you swipe over in your show notes and tap flickchart, that will take you straight to this movie at flickchart.com where you can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up to ours. First up, we have a star is born or Rocky three. Hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. Rocky three. Yeah, I guess I would go for Rocky Three. Sure. Yeah. All right. Next up, a star is born or the fifth element. The fifth element. A star is born, please. <laughs> okay, here we go. One, two, two three, three scissors. Rock. I don't know what that sound was. Sorry. That's, that's one for Arizona. <laughs> A yeah, Star is Born or Labyrinth. I will gladly take Labyrinth. I will take Labyrinth. A Star is Born or Lupin the Third, the Castle of Cagliostro. I will take... Uh... I think I'll take A Star is Born. But it's I'm totally on the fence. Like, I am persuadable. Yeah, I'm a little wishy-washy on this one. I think I'm going to take The Castle of Cagliostro, though. You got it. Take it. <laughs> okay. It's all yours. Run with it. 
Uh, here's one we haven't seen pop up in a very long time. A Star is Born or David Mamet's Red Belt? Red Belt with a bullet. Uh, hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, Red Belt is what you want to say. I'll Starts give it to you. I'll give it to you. A Star is Born or the Sandlot? I will take the Sandlot. In a heartbeat. A Star is Born or the Adventures of Baron Munchausen? I will take Munchausen, please. I will, too. Star is Born or Christmas in July? Oh, Christmas in July. That was delightful. Ah, Christmas in July. A Star is Born or La Femme Nikita? I will take Nikita. Yes, please. Well, that lands A Star is Born at 298. 298 out of 397. Ooh, Andy. It's about a 25% on our chart. How did it do on yours? It did a lot better than that. It landed at... uh, 2057 out of 4114 which is right at the 50% mark. 50%. Fascinating. It it fell <laughs> like a stone uh in, on mine uh, and I think uh, almost unjustifiably so. It's just one after another of these flick chart rankings that didn't do the comparison justice. Uh it landed at 933 out of 1076. <laughs> Oof. That's a 13%. Uh, and, and if I were to take that, Andy, if I were to just to take what Flickchart says is gospel, that would put this at a half star over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. Uh, I, I am, I'm probably not going to listen to the algorithm today. Uh, I, I think I need to give it a little bit of a boost, but not, not too much. Now, if I'm listening to you, that means you should be right at what? Two and a half stars? That's what it would mean. Is that what you're doing? That's what I'm doing. Hmm. Two two and a half stars. I I at this point I don't think I'm giving it a like. I feel like I could watch this film another day. I may not like it that much more uh star rating wise, but I feel like it could end up at least with a like. I but right now two and a half uh no heart. Okay. I um I'm, I'm just not I'm not quite there. I'll give it two stars and no heart uh for me as well. All right. That average is out two and a quarter stars. It'll round up to two and a half. Well, that's it then. That's nineteen seventy six, and that means we're cruising into the present. Where do we go from here? Yes. Well, we are skipping over the two thousand thirteen Bollywood remake which is unofficial so it doesn't really count it's called ashiki 2 which is romance 2 and it's actually a sequel to a previous film that they had done and they they called it a spiritual sequel Uh, and apparently it's quite good actually i'm really kind of curious to watch it i've watched a few of their musical numbers earlier today just to get a taste of it it feels very bollywood um but it i could sense the story i got a very very much a feel of the tale that was going to unfold here and it very much is a remake but we're not talking about um ashiki 2 we are talking about the 2018 remake that uh, good old bradley cooper decided to make with lady gaga and we're going to be looking at that and uh it'll be a fitting conclusion to this series uh, for another 20 years at least uh i hope it's a fitting conclusion i hope he answers the question why this you say that with such disdain every time it's not disdain it's just confusion uh, it's like why remake <laughs> hamlet because it's a good story. Andy, I might say that exactly the same way. Well, everybody, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, The Marvel Movie Minute. We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. And we've started with 2008's Iron Man. 
You can support that show and all of our shows over on thenextreel.com slash Patreon. And you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Wow. I don't know. Uh, there are some people who don't like this movie. It turns out there are a it lot has more, more one people. more one-stars than the previous one. It yeah. does have more one-stars than the previous, but there's still a lot of people who do like it. So we'll just say we're cherry-picking the uh, the bad ones, as we do. Yes. There are as some people who really don't like Barbara Streisand or Chris Christopherson. So <laughs> that's all. Uh, would you like to kick us off? Certainly. I've got a one star by W.P. Wells, who says John Peters should have stuck to hairstyling. <laughs> Possibly one of the worst movies I have ever seen. Paid two ninety nine to watch on Prime would have paid another two ninety nine to stop. Didn't even bother finishing. Every scene was a badly dated, poorly acted cliche. If anyone wants to appreciate the new A Star is Born with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, simply watch as much of this atrocity as you can stomach. There is no chemistry between between Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand, except that neither can act. Gary Busey is actually laughable as a 70s rock star manager. This is simply a really, really bad movie. Oh. Maybe one day, Mystery Science Theater could salvage something. <laughs> oh. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you're bringing them in, oof, it's oh, saying something. trouble. Trouble. <laughs> I've got a one star from Kathy who says that uh, it's not withstood the passage of time. She also, oh. she doesn't like Barbara. She says she stinks up this whole movie, just awful. And I'm a big fan, so take that into consideration. Most of the characters are just <laughs> schlocky. Chris Christopherson could have been fantastic, but his character was emasculated. Characters were stereotypical and cartoonish. P.U. <laughs> P.U., Andy. That's the stinky sound. I have to read another one because it's really funny. Once our Sonic Gourmet, 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 one, don't do it. Like walking on an endless road of broken glass, the worst. <laughs> Save yourself in two plus hours, you'll never get back. Four thumbs down. Oh, no. <laughs> oh dear. Well, as always, uh, Amazon has done the yeoman's work of collecting this trash for us to read. So thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. 
After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.